This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Tonight on this special edition of 60 Minutes Presents, Mob Stories. That's the apartment. That corner on the third floor. The apartment belonged to Boston mobster and longtime fugitive Whitey Bulger, then the most wanted man in America. Bulger eluded the FBI for 14 years by hiding in plain sight in Santa Monica, California. Tonight, you'll hear from the agents who finally caught him with some help from an alley cat and his girlfriend's breast implants. We just rushed him. Amy, guns out, FBI, don't move. I asked him to identify himself, and that didn't go over well. He asked me to effing identify myself, and I asked him, I said, are you Whitey Bulger? He said yes. When you became a made man, when you were formally inducted in, into La Cosa Nostra. You like the way that word sounds? La Cosa Nostra, how it flows on your tongue? No one is likely to be watching the story more closely than the FBI. You break rules, you end up in a dumpster. It's the first extended TV interview John Gotti Jr. has ever done. He talks about his life as a made member of the Gambino crime family, following in the footsteps of his famous father, the dapper Don, John Gotti Sr. Obviously, he spent a lot of time in prison for murder. How do you justify that? I don't know if you could ever justify murder. I don't know if you could justify it. But I could make, an, I could make some type of an argument. You want to hear it? Sure. Okay. The fact that they allowed an FBI agent to infiltrate their organization and add to that the fact that I'm a Cuban-born 
playing an Italian who was able to fool them, it's an amazing insult to them. Jack Garcia learned the language of La Cosa Nostra, infiltrated the mob, and took down one of the most powerful mobsters in America. How did he do it? And why is he now talking on 60 Minutes? But you know what? If somebody comes after me, they better come in numbers because I'm ready for them. Good evening. I'm Steve Croft. Tonight, tales of murder, mayhem, and the mafia. 60 Minutes presents Mob Stories. We begin with Charlie and Carol Gasco. They were an elderly couple who moved to Santa Monica, California sometime in early 1997 to begin a new phase of their life. For the next 14 years, they did almost nothing that was memorable. And as we first reported back in 2013, they would be of absolutely no interest if it weren't for the fact that Charlie Gasco turned out to be James Whitey Bulger, the notorious Boston gangster and longtime fugitive who is now in prison serving two lifetime sentences. Carol Gasco was actually Catherine Gregg, Whitey's longtime girlfriend and caregiver. The story of how they managed to elude an international manhunt for so long while hiding in plain sight is interesting. And tonight, you'll hear about it from the Gasco's neighbors and from federal agents who finally unraveled the case with the help of a boob job and an alley cat. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. If you're forced into retirement with a comfortable nest egg and a desire to be left completely alone, there is no better place than Santa Monica, California. This low-key seaside suburb of L.A. is shared by transients and tourists, hippies and hedonists, celebrities, and lots of senior citizens, attracted to the climate and an abundance of inexpensive rent-controlled apartments just a few blocks from the ocean. Places like the Princess Eugenia on 3rd Street, which is where Charlie and Carol Gasco, a childless couple from Chicago, lived for 14 years without attracting much attention from longtime neighbors or landlords. Josh Bond is the building manager. What were they like? They were uh, like the nice, retired, old couple that lived in the apartment next to me. Good tenants? Uh, excellent tenants. Never complained. Always paid rent on time. In cash? In cash. Janice Goodwin lived down the hall. They had nothing, and they never went out. They'd never had food delivered. She never dressed nicely. You thought they were poor? Yes, without a doubt. The one thing everyone remembers about the Gascos is that they loved animals and always made a fuss over the ones in the neighborhood. Barbara Gluck remembers that Carol Gasco always fed a stray cat after its owner had died. She would, you know, pet it and be sweet to it, and then she would put a plate of food, like out here. Mm-hmm. And what about Charlie Gasco? You know, he always had a hat on and dark glasses. I have to say, it was mysterious to me why a lovely woman like that was hanging out with that guy, that old grumpy man. I never could figure that one out until I heard they had 800000 something dollars in the wall. <laughs> and then I went, oh, okay, <laughs> you know. Money wasn't the only thing found in the Gasco's apartment on June 22, 2011, when the FBI stopped by and ended what it called the most extensive manhunt in the Bureau's history. Weapons all over the apartment. I mean, weapons by his nightstand, weapons under the windowsill, shotguns, mini Rugers, rifles. 
What had started out as a routine day for Special Agent Scott Gariola, who was in charge of hunting fugitives in L.A., would turn into one of the most interesting days of his career. After getting a call to stake out a building in Santa Monica, he notified his backup team with the LAPD. I had four guys working that day, and they said, we got a tip on uh, Whitey Bulger, and I'll see you there in about an hour. And invariably, the uh, text will return, who's Whitey Bulger? Really? A few of them, uh, I'd remind them, gently remind them who Whitey Bulger was. That he was number one on the FBI's most wanted list. Number one. Number one, yeah. Big big East Coast figure, but (laughs) in the West Coast, not so much. Imagine any cartel leader. The cops in L.A. were focused on gangbangers and cartel members, not some retired Irish mobster who hadn't been spotted in 16 years. But then few mobsters have ever been as infamous in a city as Whitey Bulger was in Boston. And his reputation was for more than just being grumpy. Besides extortion and flooding the city with cocaine, Bulger routinely performed or ordered executions, some at close range, some with a hail of bullets, and at least one by strangulation, after which it's said he took a nap. Special Agent Rich Tian, who ran the FBI's Whitey Bulger Fugitive Task Force, had heard it all. Bulger was charged with 19 counts of of murder. He was charged with other crimes. He was a scourge to the society uh, in South Boston, his own community. He was also a scourge to the FBI and a great source of embarrassment to Tian, Special Agent Phil Torsney, and others on the FBI task force. Years earlier, Whitey Bulger had infiltrated the Boston office of the FBI and bought off agents who protected him and plied him with information, including the tip that allowed Bulger to flee just days before he was to be indicted. We really had to catch this guy to establish... uh, credibility after all the other issues, and it was just a matter of bringing this guy back to Boston. Torsney, who's now retired, and Agent Tommy McDonald joined the task force in 2009. The joke was Bulger was on the FBI's least wanted list. There hadn't been a credible lead in more than a decade, and their efforts in Bulger's old neighborhood of South Boston were met with mistrust and ridicule. Some people, they told us right out front, you guys aren't looking for that guy. People just made the assumption we had them stashed somewhere. I mean, people really thought that kind of thing. Despite that mindset that we're not going to help you, um, the FBI still got it done. Took 16 years. Took 16 years. Yeah, this was not a typical fugitive. The FBI says Bulger had planned his getaway years in advance, with money set aside and a fake identity for a Thomas Baxter. During his first two years on the lam, Bulger was in touch with friends and family, shuttling between New York, Chicago, and the resort town of Grand Isle, Louisiana, where he rented a home until his identity was compromised. After that, it seemed as if Bulger had disappeared from the face of the earth, except for the alleged sightings all over the world. How many of these tips do you think might have been true? Boy, there was was thousands and thousands of tips, and I think... uh, I don't think any of them are true. One of the obstacles was there were really no good photographs of Bulger or his longtime live-in girlfriend, Catherine Gregg, a former dental hygienist. The FBI often noted that the couple shared a love of animals, especially dogs and cats, and asked veterinarians to be on the lookout. There were reports that Gregg once had breast implants and other plastic surgery in Boston, so the task force reached out to physicians. Eventually, they got a call from a Dr. Matthias Donnellan, who had located her files in storage. I was trying to leave the office a little early to catch one of my kids' ball games, And I said, well, listen, I'm going to swing by in the morning and pick those up. 
And they said to me, uh, do you want the photos, too? And I said, you have photos? And they said, yeah, we have photos. I said, we'll be there in 15 minutes. The breast implant lead produced a treasure trove of high-resolution Catherine Gregg photographs that would help crack the case. The FBI decided to switch strategies, going after the girlfriend in order to catch the gangster. This is an announcement by the FBI. Have the FBI created this public service announcement. 60-year-old Grieg is the girlfriend of 81-year-old Bulger. It ran in 14 markets on daytime talk shows aimed at women. Call the tip line at 1-800-CALL-FBI. And it didn't take long. The very next morning, the Bulger task force got three messages from someone that used to live in Santa Monica and was 100% certain that Charlie and Carol Gasco, apartment 303 at the Princess Eugenia Apartments, were the people they were looking for. The descriptions and the age difference matched, and Deputy U.S. Marshal Neil Sullivan, who handled the lead, said there was another piece of tantalizing information. The tipster specifically described that they were caring for this cat and their, their love for this cat. So that was just one, one piece of the puzzle and the, and the tip that just added up to saying, if this isn't them, it's, it's something we better check out immediately because it sure sounds like them. A search of the FBI's computer database for the Gascos raised another red flag, not for what it found, but for what it didn't. Basically, like they were ghosts. No driver's license. Exactly. No driver's license, no California ID, like they didn't exist. That's the apartment. That corner on the third floor. On the right-hand side? Yep. By early afternoon, FBI agent Scott Gariola had set up a number of surveillance posts and had already met with apartment manager Josh Bond to talk about his tenants. He closed the door, threw down a folder and opened it up and said, are these the people that live in apartment 303? Did you say anything when you saw the pictures? My initial reaction was, holy You're living next door to a gangster. Well, I still didn't really know who he was. But it didn't take him long to figure it out. While the FBI was mulling its options, Bond logged on to Bulger's Wikipedia page. I'm just kind of scrolling down. It's like, oh, wow, this guy's serious. It's like murders and extortion. And then I get to the bottom and there's just this thing. It's like from one of his old people saying, well, the last time I saw him, he, he said, you know, when he goes out, he's, he's going to have guns and he's going to be ready to take people with him. I was like, ooh, maybe I shouldn't be involved in this. <laughs> Bond told the FBI he wasn't going to knock on the Gasco's door because there was a note posted expressly asking people not to bother them. Carol had told neighbors that Charlie was showing signs of dementia. So we were, we were back there. So Gariola devised a ruse involving the Gasco's storage locker in the garage. It had the name Gasco across it and apartment 303. He had the manager called to tell them that their locker had been broken into and that he needed someone to come down to see if anything was missing. Carol Gasco said her husband would be right down. We just rushed him. You mean guns out, FBI, sure. don't move? Gave the words, hey, FBI, get your hands up. And hands went up right away. And then at that moment, we told him to get down on his knees, and he gave us... <laughs> yeah, he gave us a, I ain't getting down on my effing knees. Didn't want to get his pants dirty. Didn't want to get his pants dirty. You know, wearing white and seeing the oil on the ground, I guess he didn't want to get down in oil. Even at 81, this was a man used to being in control. I asked him to identify himself, and that didn't go over well. He asked me to effing identify myself, which I did. And I asked him, I said, are you, are you Whitey Bulger? He said yes. Just about that moment, someone catches my attention from a few feet away by the elevator shaft. It was Janice Goodwin from the third floor coming to do her laundry. 
And I said, excuse me, I think I can help you. This man has dementia. So if he's acting oddly, you know, that could be why. Immediately what flashed through my mind is, oh, my God, I just arrested an 81-year-old man with Alzheimer's who thinks he's Whitey Bulger. What is he going to tell me next? He's Elvis. <laughs> so I said, do me a favor. I said, this woman over here says you have a touch of Alzheimer's. He said, don't li listen to her. She's effing nuts. He says, uh, I'm James Bulger. A few minutes later, he confirmed it, signing a consent form allowing the FBI to search his apartment. I did ask him, I said, hey, Whitey, I said, aren't you relieved that you don't have to look over your shoulder anymore and you know, it's, it's come to an end? And he said, are you nuts? But in some ways, Whitey Bulger and Catherine Gregg had already been prisoners in apartment 303, which appeared to be a mixture of the murderous and the mundane. Alongside the weapons and all the money, they had stockpiled a lifetime supply of cleansers, creams, and detergents. The FBI took special interest in a collection of 64-ounce bottles with white socks stretched over the top. I said, hey, Whitey, what are these? Are these some kind of Molotov cocktail you're making? He goes, no. He said, I buy uh, tube socks from the 99-cent store, and they're too tight on my calves. That's the way I stretch them out. I said, why are you shopping at the 99-cent store? You have uh, half a million dollars under your bed. He goes, I had to make the money last. It's been said that one of the reasons it took so long to catch Whitey Bulger is that people were looking for a gangster, and Bulger, whether he liked it or not, had ceased to be one. He said it was hard to keep up that mindset of a criminal, and that's part of the reason he came down to that garage. It was hard to stay on that edge, that criminal edge, after being on the lam as a regular citizen for 15 years. The master manipulator gave credit to Catherine Gregg for keeping him crime-free, hoping it would mitigate her sentence. She's now serving eight years for harboring a fugitive. On the long plane ride back to Boston, Bulger told his captors that he became obsessed with not getting caught and would do anything to avoid it, even if it meant obeying the law. Whitey Bulger's biggest fear, they said, was being discovered dead in his apartment, and he had a plan to avoid it. If he became ill and knew he was on his deathbed, he'd go down to Arizona, crawl down the bottom of one of these mines and die and decompose and hope, hope that we would never find him and still be looking, at, looking for him forever. As for all that money that was seized from Whitey Bulger's apartment, federal prosecutors are preparing to distribute nearly $822,000 to the families of his murder victims and three men who were extorted by the gangster. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. For nearly three decades, the name Gotti has been synonymous with organized crime in America. According to the federal government, John Gotti Sr. and later his son, John Jr., ran the Gambino crime family, the largest, most influential mafia family in the country. Gotti Sr., who died in prison 13 years ago, was a ruthless gangster who craved celebrity. The son, if you're to believe his story, wanted out, and John Gotti Jr., wants people to believe his story. After the federal government put him on trial four times in five years without getting a conviction, he agreed to sit down with us in 2010 and talk about his family saga in his first extended television interview. He wanted to be the only person we talked to on camera for this story and to have his lawyer by his side to make sure he didn't say anything that could be used to indict him again. 
because no one was more likely to be watching the story more closely than the FBI. My father was my cause. If my father wasn't in that life, I probably wouldn't have been in a street life either. Whatever he was is what I wanted to be. And if he decided the next day, you know what, I don't like this anymore, I'm going to be a butcher. I would tell him, I hope you have a smock for me. That's the way I feel. That's the way I felt. You can tell he still worships his father. Handsome as ever. Handsome as ever. Not just with the love of a son, but with some of the same misguided romanticism that has long drawn the news media and the public to the mob culture. And John Gotti Sr. was the most famous mobster of his generation. He ascended to the top of the Gambino crime family by organizing the assassination of his predecessor, Paul Castellano, outside a popular Manhattan steakhouse. It was a stylistic statement that Gotti Sr. would accentuate with $2,000 Italian suits and hand-painted ties, earning him a certain brand of celebrity and a nickname, the Dapper Don. In New York, a city that worships power of any kind, Gotti's reached beyond gambling and loan sharking into the garment center, the garbage business, and the construction industry. And he wanted everyone to know what he did, as long as they couldn't prove it. Now, a friend of your father's told me there's nothing he loved better than being a gangster. Nothing. Nothing. What did he love about it? Uh, Everything. There was nothing he didn't like about it. My father lived that life 24-7, 24-7. In fact, his wife and kids were second to the streets. He loved it. He loved the code. He loved the action. He loved the chase. Was that more important than money? He hated money. He used to say, if a guy was saving money or putting money away, and he was a street guy, he would say, what's on his mind? What's he got planned? You know, at the end of the day, we're all going to jail. What's he going to do with that money? Is that the way he looked at life? He felt that anybody who really, truly lived in the streets, not the fringe players, not the frauds, not the pretenders, if you really, truly lived it like John did, at the end of the day, you got to die or go to jail. That's the rules. That's the way it was. Did he talk about what he did for a living? No, he didn't sit at the table and say, you know, by the way, my take from the numbers rackets are up this week. You know, it didn't go like that. Nothing like that. And he didn't have conversations like that with the... with. Some of his friends. No, other than my father being away from home, you know, being incarcerated and the hours that he kept, uh, our house was a pretty normal house. Gotti says it wasn't until he was 14 when he was shipped off to boarding school at the New York Military Academy that he found out exactly who his father was and what he did. And he learned it while watching a news program with his fellow cadets. What was the reaction of your classmates? I guess maybe some of them were intimidated. But most of them thought it was pretty cool. Does your father, uh, does your father kill people? Does your father beat people up? Not around the house. At some point, you must have come to the realization that he did outside of the house. Probably. I don't know. In front of me? No. How do you, as a young man, react to that? From Howard Beach. I'm from Howard Beach. Pretty much we're taught from young age that you don't call the cops for nothing. We take care of our own problems. And pretty much all your uncles, cousins, friends, father, they're all bouncing around the street in one shape or form. And this is the way it is. As 14-year-old kids, 15-year-old kids, 
we'd go up to the boulevard where we hung out and we'd talk about, uh, hey, tough break, you know, uh, Tony just got 10 years, he's going to jail, having a big party from over there. Oh, yeah, good, good, good. And his son's you know, sitting next to you. It, just, it was normal conversation for us. You, you knew people were breaking the law. Sure, sure. And what you're saying is that wasn't considered necessarily a bad thing. No, no, not at all. Because? Because everybody did it. You know what? The guy next to you was a car thief. The guy next to you on your left-hand side, he was a bookmaker. That's everybody. It was the summer after he graduated from military school that Gotti discovered what he thought was his calling, hanging around his father's headquarters at the Bergen Hunt and Fish Club. I'd go to the Bergen Hunt and Fish Club all the time. I wanted to be around him. And he had that type of a personality. And I would just watch. He's sitting around a social club, and they'd be playing cards, and they're hanging out, and they're breaking balls, and cooking, and laughing, and commiserating, and everything is going on. And you're right there. And you're saying, this is where I belong. When you became a made man, when you were formally inducted in, into La Cosa Nostra, was that, a, was that a big deal for him? You like the way that word sounds, La Cosa Nostra, how it flows on your tongue? No, I, 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 I'm trying to find another word. You, you don't like mob. You don't like mafia. I was a street guy. I was in the streets. Okay. And, uh, you know, when my father em embraced me and put his arm around me and looked at me as a street guy, as a knock-around guy, a bounce-around guy like himself, proudest moment of my life. It's the proudest moment of my life. It's because I was slowly becoming like him. Obviously, he spent a lot of time in prison for murder. How do you justify that? I don't know if you could ever justify murder. I don't know if you could justify it. But I could make, an, I could make some type of an argument. You want to hear it? Sure. Okay. So John was a part of the streets. He swore that that was his life. He swore, I'm going to live and die by the rules of the streets, the code of the streets. And everybody that John's accused of killing or may have killed or wanted to kill or tried to kill was a part of that same street. That was a part of the same world, the same code. And my father has always said in his mind, you break rules, you end up in a dumpster. If I break rules, meaning himself, they're going to put two in my hat and put me in a dumpster. That's the way it works. So am I justifying it? No, I'm explaining it. And you were comfortable living in that world? When you don't know much else, yeah. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. When you don't know much else, I guess so. You thought you were capable of killing somebody? I don't think anybody... I don't, I don't know if anybody ever thinks of himself as capable of killing anybody uh, until they're put into that position. You know, I want to ask you, have you ever killed anybody? But you're not going to answer that question, are you? First of all, it's a ridiculous question. Second off, uh, if you go by the government, who didn't I kill? By the late 1990s, he learned that the federal government was preparing to file charges against him for racketeering. And he began to wonder whether he had the stomach for the job. I mean, that there was a lot of treachery. Oh, absolutely. Well, there's treachery in everything. There's treachery in the corporate world. Equally, I have to say, I can't say more so. Equally so in the streets. It's dealt with a little differently on the streets, though. Uh, careers are made and broken. Guys are bankrupted. Yeah, I see where you're going with this. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever worry about getting whacked? Every day. Every day. It's a possibility. It's a possibility that something could happen to you every day of your life. 
And you know something? When you, when you hang out in the streets, uh, you're hanging with a, a, a different type of a person. You don't, you don't know what's going to happen. You know, you can be with uh, Tony's here today, and then Tony's doing 10 years tomorrow. Billy's here today, and then you never see him again. Who knows? Anything's possible. It's a volatile existence. Today, Gotti is a free man and back living in his family's two-acre compound with a swimming pool and stables in the fashionable village of Oyster Bay, Long Island. Very nice piece of property. Thank you. He claims the property was purchased with income from legitimate businesses, and the government has been unable to prove otherwise. He says it's heavily mortgaged, and he is deeply in debt after spending millions on his legal bills. He says the family is getting by on a modest income from commercial real estate properties. This little guy was born the first day of jury selection in my third trial. Gotti is now 51, married with six children, ranging in age from 8 to 24. He says he's still trying to acclimate himself to normal family life. Uh, I was in the life. I was active in the life. Um, I embraced the life and everything that went with it. But a lot of what you've heard and seen about me is fiction. There's fact and there's fiction, and a lot of it is fiction. Was there anything about the life other than your father that you liked and enjoyed? There's a lot to like about the streets. There's a lot of glamour there. You know, there's a lot of uh, what you believe to be camaraderie. Uh, the glamour part. Tell me about the glamour part. Well, there's the suits. There's the cars. Uh, there's the restaurants. There's the attention. The deference you're given, no matter where you go, uh, you know, it means a lot. You feel like you're a special kind of guy. Gotti says he's explored the possibility of leaving the New York area for North Carolina or Florida. But some of his children are resisting. He says he's interested in writing a book about his life. I, uh, I've been writing for several years, um, exploring a literary career. You wrote a children's book? I did. I did. While I was in Ray Brook, sure. Fun. It was funny because the, the, the fact that I, I, I had written it and my cellmate, who was doing 17 years of bank robbery, Brian Lindemann, sweetheart of a kid, uh, he was uh, he's somewhat of an artist. So he did all the illustrations and I couldn't get it published. I couldn't get it published because everywhere we went, they wanted my life. Now we want to know about the juicy stuff and, and then we'll do that. And I wasn't interested in doing it. So basically went nowhere. In the years since we conducted that interview, John Gotti did end up self-publishing an autobiography called Shadow of My Father. He's been working on a movie version that he says will star John Travolta playing his dad. It's scheduled to be shot in 2016. I'm blessed. Blessed. Why do you feel that way? You're alive. I'm alive. I'm free. My children are healthy, which is most important. I have the liberty to get up every morning and embrace my children, spend time with my family. I'm blessed. If tomorrow morning I walked in, saw an oncologist, and he told me you have terminal cancer, I'm ahead of the game. I can't complain. I won't complain. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Few institutions protect their secrets as passionately and more violently than the mafia. Being accepted into the inner sanctum of the mob demands from its members a blood oath of loyalty known as Omerta. Imagine then what it was like when a Cuban-American FBI agent infiltrated the most feared crime family in America posing as an Italian gangster.
back in 2008, that agent, Jack Garcia, came out from undercover for the first time and told Armin Katayan how he did it, how he was able to fool the wisest of the wise guys, delivering an acting performance that was more believable than anything Hollywood could produce. I always played the big role. I mean, my mantra was, you know, think big, be big. And I was able to be the type of guy that never in a million years would somebody suspect that I was an agent. Joaquin Jack Garcia may be the most unlikely law enforcement figure in history, all 390 pounds of him, whose performance was so convincing that he was offered the mafia's highest honor, to become a made man in the mob. In the mob culture, that is the holy grail. For an associate to be proposed for membership into La Cosa Nostra is what these criminals aspired to do. To become a made man. To become a made man. The fact that they allowed an FBI agent to infiltrate their organization and add to that the fact that I'm a Cuban-born, playing an Italian who was able to fool them, it's an amazing insult to them. For Garcia, his invitation to enter the mob capped a career working a staggering 100 major undercover cases. But none compared with Jack Falcone the character he created in 2002 to get inside the Gambino crime family, playing the role of an investor in a strip club that the Gambinos and one of their ruthless leaders, Greg De Palma, were muscling in on. Jack Falcone entered the scene in the Bronx, New York. He was a guy who was a jewel thief, and he was a guy who was an extortionist and a hijacker. I drove a fancy car. I mean, I had the Rolex President watch. I had the obligatory three... Uh, Carrot diamond pinky. I had the uh, cross. Then, of course, suits. All got to be Italian silk. You know, you got to get your Brionis. You got to get your Zenia. Lucky guy my size. There's not too many Zenias or Brionis in uh, my size. <laughs> so it's this package that you want to create. You don't play the role of this big money launderer, and then you show up in a, in a Yugo. Garcia was the complete package. 20 years' experience as an FBI agent combined with a style and charm that mobsters could not resist. I was this big guy with a lot of cash who everybody wanted to be around. So I would disarm the person by always being nice. Hey, you're looking great today. Where'd you get those nice threads, man? Look at you. Like a million dollars. Oh, yeah, look good. Yeah, yeah, boy, look at this. Love those blue shoes. Everybody loves a happy guy. Happy Jack. Happy Jack. Worked for me. New York FBI agent Nat Parisi handpicked Garcia for the job, becoming his handler in the case, his sole lifeline to the outside world during the two-and-a-half-year investigation. When he enters a room full of wise guys, they're all going to want to know, who is that man? How do you train a Cuban-American to become an Italian-American and pass the wise guy test? I'm an Italian-American, and I shared with Jack, you know, my experiences growing up, but he and I were convinced that he could pull it off. So Nat decided to come up with this school that we called it the mob school. Excuse me? Yes, it was called the mob school. A form of higher education that included, of all things, a trip to the grocery store, where Garcia learned one of the mob's golden rules. Never carry your cash in a wallet. Wrap it in a rubber band pulled from a head of broccoli. You would take this off, as you can see, and then you would just wrap it up. Here you are. This is the way you operated with your money. Everybody just simply carries a wad of cash. With the broccoli band. With the broccoli band. That was one of those little things that could be big things down the line if you didn't, if you didn't prepare right for your role. Because 
Unlike, like I said, in The Sopranos, where multiple takes, there was only one take. And that was it. And it had to be a good one. The training also required Garcia to spend countless hours in front of the television. Do I have this right? You actually watch the Food Channel? Yes. You pick up little phrases there, you know, tutto bene, you know, and, and all these little things. And I would watch the, the way the food was prepared. What are the ingredients that went in, the pronunciation of the ingredient. Because all, a lot of conversations all dealt with, hey, how's your food? How's your pasta fagiole? Hey, it's good. Hey, I could add a little more of this, a little bit of that. And, and it was always like, they were, everybody was a food critic in the mob. Oh, forget about this. Go down the block. This guy makes it better than this guy. Like being Cuban, I get caught up sometimes winning. Like I would say, manicotti. It's not manicotti, it's manigot. For you, a single mispronunciation, a single misstep, the wrong word at the, at the wrong time, the alarm bells go off. Exactly. And I couldn't afford having alarm bells going off. I wanted things to constantly be without any suspicion. Garcia left nothing to chance out of respect and fear for the man at the center of his investigation. Gambino Capo, Greg De Palma, head of the family's operations in New York's affluent Westchester County. At 72, De Palma had a reputation as an old-school mobster with a hair-trigger temper. Greg De Palma, I would best describe him as uh, the devil incarnate. Very evil man, very evil man. Correct me if I'm wrong, who once used a power tool yes. on someone's head. That is correct. Who he thought was stealing from him. Yes. A man not given to subtlety. He just didn't care. And he took his oath, and he really lived by it, where the family came first, that if your child was dying, laying in bed with few minutes to live or seconds, and the boss calls you, you better leave that child and go see the boss, because that's your real family. Before long, Jack Falcone won over De Palma, first by giving him cartons of counterfeit cigarettes for his birthday, and then by offering him what became an endless stream of luxury goods, all supplied to Jack by the FBI. There's a word for the kind of guy you were in the mafia. You're, a, you're an earner. I'm an earner. What being they, an, well, being an earner is a very important thing. An earner is the kind of guy who makes money, not only for himself and his skipper, but also for the family. And Greg De Palma saw me as an earner. For two years, Falcone wore a wire taped to his chest and for good measure gave De Palma this cell phone with a bugging device that allowed the FBI to track De Palma's location and listen in on his conversations, even when the phone was turned off. Falcone became like a son to De Palma, at his side while he and other mobsters concocted schemes to extort businesses sell fake sports memorabilia, and collect a tax on nearly every union construction site in New York. Greg De Palma told me that in New York City, 2% of all construction goes to the mob. You're talking, what, tens? You want to do business? Of millions of dollars? That's the mob tax, it's called. In building their case against the Gambinos, Garcia and his handler, Nat Parisi, would meet up to five times a day, often in public places like this Home Depot exchanging evidence and information. I would come in with an envelope that would contain all the recording devices, uh, which I wore. I'd also brief him on what we knew, the intelligence that we were gathering so that he can be safer and do his job uh, out there better. But for all the information they exchanged, there was one extraordinary conversation captured on tape, an offer from De Palma to make Falcone a made member of the mob. There's only one thing I'm pushing to do. A ASAP is you. 
I appreciate that. that would be the second guy. I mean, you want it, right? Uh, yeah, of course, man. I'm honored for that. I'm even honored that, you know, you know, I will never let you down either. What's going through your mind when you hear those words, you're going to become a made man? I couldn't believe it. And I feel, I said, wow, we're here. We've really come a long way. Here I am, an FBI agent. He's trusted me so much that he would propose me, considering that this is a seasoned hardcore mobster. There had to be some sort of escape plan. If things went wrong, if you were asked to kill somebody, what was the out? The scenario I set up, if I was ever going to be involved, let's take a ride, Jack. We're going to go take care of this guy. I was going to have a heart attack. So picks it is. All of a sudden, I'm going to do somebody. I'm going to start wailing like on the ground. They're going to stop what they're doing. They're going to try to take me to the doctor, and I would do it. So I had this all programmed in my mind. But in February 2005, Garcia's life as Jack Falcone unraveled inside this Bloomingdale's department store when he acted more like a cop than a criminal. It happened in the houseware section when he watched a Gambino capo named Robert Vaccaro attack another capo known as Petey Chops with a heavy crystal candlestick. He takes it, cracks him on the head, and you hear like a melon breaking. Just pop, and then blood start gushing. He drops straight down. And I'm sitting there and go, I, I don't believe what's going on. I just saw an assault going on here. In the houseware section. In the houseware section, President's Day, and Bloomingdale's White Plain. Doesn't mafia law dictate that you get in on this beating? You're right. I'm saying, okay, now, I think I messed up royally here. So, number one, I didn't take any licks at this guy, Petey Chops. I should have been, you know, kicking him, banging him some way or something, and slapping him around. I didn't do that. A I potential didn't. fatal mistake for you? I thought that that incident, they looked at me after that a little, little different. The FBI was so concerned that Garcia had blown his cover and was about to be killed that it pulled the plug on the investigation. But by now, the Bureau had gathered enough evidence to take down the hierarchy of the Gambino crime family, including Greg De Palma and 31 other associates. All pled guilty except De Palma, who insisted on going to trial. In the courtroom, the man he trusted as Jack Falcone turned right before his eyes into FBI agent Jack Garcia. Describe the look on Greg De Palma's face when you're testifying against him in court. I was classic... He's looking at me, you know, you could tell, like, if he could just come get his hands around my neck, you know, he'd just take me out. And I'm walking out of the courtroom. I had to pass by his table, and he just looked at me, and he said to me, and I'm a, you know, you're going to have to probably blot this out, but he goes, you, you know. So, so I just walked away, and, you know, just... From the bottom of his heart. From the bottom of his heart. De Palma was sentenced to 12 years in prison. And while Garcia says he is proud of the outcome of the case, he's angry over the decision to end the investigation, a decision that kept him from being the first law enforcement agent in history to become a made member of the mob. But Mark Mershon, then the head of the FBI's New York office, says it was critical to protect one of their own. There is a risk-reward relationship that we're simply not willing to uh, uh, take on but I will tell you that by anybody's estimate, Jack Garcia was one of just a handful in the entire 100-year history of the FBI to be both so successful and so prolific. He was that good. He was truly, truly outstanding. Retired from the FBI in 2008 after 26 years, Garcia wrote a best-selling book published by a CBS sister company. He came out of the shadows, defiant in the face of the risk to his life. 
Why in the world do this interview on 60 Minutes? Why put yourself out in, in the public this way? Why should I be walking around hiding as to who I am? And I know there's these safety issues and all that, but you know what? It's just I equate this to like bullies when you're growing up. Bullies will pick on the weak. If I hide myself from the camera and walk around with these silly glasses and a hat and the blot out face, you know what? I'm afraid of them. I'm not the bad guy here. I'm the good guy. You had more than enough people that wanted you dead. That is true. Could it happen? Absolutely. But you know what? Somebody comes after me, they better come in numbers because I'm ready for them. For a look at how 60 Minutes reports its stories, as well as interviews with correspondents and producers, go to 60MinutesOvertime.com. I'm Steve Croft. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes. Are you a fan of 60 Minutes? You can represent the most watched series on television with shirts, sweatshirts, mugs, and more at ParamountShop.com. You can take 20% off with code MINUTES20. That's 20% off at checkout on all 60 Minutes products with code MINUTES20 at ParamountShop.com. Listen to the 48 Hours Podcast for shocking murder cases and compelling real-life dramas from one of television's most watched true crime shows. Go behind the scenes of each episode with award-winning CBS News correspondents and producers in Postmortem, a weekly deep dive. Listen to 48 Hours wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.